Hello and welcome to Dyslexia Explored. I'm Darius Nomderon, your host. Today we're going to go local and I've got from Scotland a man who is uh, both a parent of children with dyslexia and is also the CEO of a significant organisation in Scotland and Edinburgh to, related to dyslexia. Alan's background is based in how to influence decision makers, policy makers, funders, investors, very much in the whole realm of influencing decision makers in the right direction. And he's very interested in neurodiversity and has recently become the CEO of Salveson Mind Room Center, who's been working in dyslexia for the last 21 plus years and there's lots of interesting things that Alan can bring to the table. I'm sure you're going to really enjoy Alan's perspective uh, as both a parent and um, a person who's trying to influence decision makers and help other parents with dyslexia. Alan, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's good to be here, Darius. Thanks very much for the invitation. Look forward to our conversation. It's going to be interesting to hear what your dyslexia story is. Um, because it's multi-layered, you know, you, you've got a dis personal dyslexia story with your family and you've also got one with being the CEO of Salveson Mind Rooms and I really want to hear about both. Before we, we kick off, could you give us a quick background of your work background and where, you, where your knowledge and sort of experience comes from so that listeners can see where you're coming from? Without going into too much detail for your listeners, I think I, I might actually just start at the beginning briefly because I think it's relevant. So I, I disengaged from school, Darius, at 16. Um, well, probably previous, actually. So I left school at 16 because I found it quite difficult to relate to, I suppose, subjects as they were taught. And, I, I, and I'll explain a bit more about how I'm wired later on in the, in the podcast. But that by definition made it quite hard to sort of find my place in the world and I ended up you know moving into finance actually by accident um and one of the stories I always tell is I I did a um I did have quite a bit of parental involvement in my subject choices in school would I go back and choose them probably not and one of them was accountancy so I did my prelim in probably, well, it would have been fourth year of high school. Did so badly, was asked not to sit <laughs> the actual exam. And the comedy in this is that a number of years later, I found myself in Toronto living and working, working for a big US asset management company and looking after several billion dollars of other people's money because I really got it in a practical sense how numbers worked and you know my understanding of how things went together of kind of ideas and patterns and all of that became not easy but far easier to relate to than the theoretical teaching of school and recognized that I needed some of that but it was the application of learning that I always you know found far more easy to engage with so that was a big part of my journey was sort of learning on the job as it, as it were and fast forward a little bit, when I came back from Canada in the early noughties, I kind of, you know, I was quite inspired to continue what I had learned. And, and, and it led me to ask the questions, well, you know, there must be a lot more people like me who 
sort of disengaged with school, had lots of potential, but that wasn't immediately something they recognised when they were in the, the sort of formal education setting. And one of the roles I took on was chief executive of a sort of trade organisation for the finance sector. And at that time, Scotland was in a place before the financial crisis where there was lots of you know new jobs being created in finance. And one of the things I was really minded to do was to help the sector realise that it wasn't just all about recruiting university graduates, which, you know, was great, but they broadly came from similar backgrounds and went to similar schools and universities. But that there were a lot of people who were maybe emerging from school and university wasn't the pathway for them, or they were maybe like me. And so that was something that got me involved, I think, in a career um, long, you know, or since um, focus of looking at inclusion and in more detail and diversity in the workplace. Um, and dyslexia being a, a, a kind of key part of that. So that's a bit about where I came from. Um, and we can say more about the kind of current role that I'm in. But, you know, I would reckon over the last near enough 20 years, really trying to advocate for, for people that, you know, might see themselves as other and really to celebrate and recognise that we are quite literally wired differently. And that's a good thing. And that we all come with skills and talents and sometimes... Um, in fact, very often, there isn't just one way of finding your way in the world. There's multiple ways. Yes. That, it's so encouraging to hear that there's multiple ways to find your way in the world. And actually, it's a common theme with different guests that people who are neurodivergent, dyslexia, ADHD, different mental, uh, autism, wh whatever way your brain is wired differently, um, often take a little bit longer to find the the route less traveled and then lock into their path. But that's often been a useful thing, but also a hard thing. So it's interesting to hear that. So for you with dyslexia, what was the wake up call for you? You know, what woke you up to dyslexia itself? Um, so it was from a personal family point of view. So I'm a father of four, and my eldest son, actually, he was diagnosed with ADHD when we lived out in Canada. And that's, you know, it, it's not unrelated in many respects, you know, being under the sort of neurodiversity uh, family, if you will. One of the things that we observed with my son was it took him longer to find his place in the world. And so he left school a wee bit later than me, and had a number of sort of starts and finishes at university and is only at 22, now sort of finds something that works for him. So it's, it's probably as far back as that, that um, and he would be very early primary school at the time that I was aware of neurodiversity overall. Subsequent to that, we had two, uh, we had a daughter and then two younger sons who are now 12 and 14, both of whom are dyslexic, one of whom um, has had a formal diagnosis of dyslexia, one actually who we've been having probably a harder time with in terms of, you know, getting a formal diagnosis and that therefore hopefully providing a bit more support and understanding in school. But that has been a period of years. So my youngest son probably started having those conversations again, almost nursery age, you know, pre preschool, because it was apparent that his learning 
was showing up in a different way and in, in, in relation to his peer group. And he, he found it harder to access the curriculum, I think, at that, at that time and ended up going into speech and language therapy and various other things that really helped bring him on. But it was evident, I think, when he was literally three, four, five, that he, he related to the world in a different way to his peer group. So you've got a very typical trajectory of a person with a dyslexic brain. Are yeah. you dyslexic yourself? I don't know. And it's led me to ask the question, as the years have gone on, and I think especially with my youngest son, Lewis, it has led me to think about, well, you know, I wonder if that's been a function of my past and present. And, you know, there are things, there are things that I would recognise in terms of my own patterns of working, how I, how I operate, the, the way in which I, I suppose I relate to the world, process information, um, try and make sense of what's in my head. A lot of that does have parallels with dyslexia, actually. And it's never something I've really explored in a, you know, a kind of formal context and sought a diagnosis for. But as Lewis has sort of moved through school and it's been better recognised and diagnosed within him, there are definitely things that I think, gosh, we're very alike. (laughs) Yeah. And that was difficult for me, too. It's interesting that because I remember when I found out about being dyslexic, I was 35 years old. And I, I was kind of like, well, what's the point of knowing? I can read, I can write, I can get by in the world. I'm, I'm, a, I, I've, I've done a law degree. I've learned how to be a joiner. I've been a primary school teacher. I, I, I teach and so on. And what, what's the point in knowing? Um, I, are you kind of at that stage as well? Is that, is it kind of like, is, is it relevant to you or not? Because I found it's been quite useful to know. But at the time, I was. Uh, and I'm actually in a similar situation with regard to ADHD. I, I think I've got dyslexia and ADHD, mm-hmm. um, but my attention has been focused on the dyslexia, but the ADHD has been a co-occurring you know, thing because a lot of people with ADHD have dyslexia and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and up until now, I've gone, yeah, well, I might be a bit ADHD. But then I think to myself, Darius, remember when you said I might be a little bit dyslexic? <laughs> and And then afterwards, you thought to yourself, actually, this has been jolly useful to know because I've learned lots of hacks to overcome some hidden tripwires. Yeah. But where are you in that sort of thinking if you think you might be dyslexic? I think I'm probably at a place where I'll, I'll look into that a little bit further for, for me. One, one of the things that I haven't shared is I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder a couple of years ago. So I'm just turned mid 40s. <laughs> um, and that was a it wasn't complete revelation to me. There were lots of patterns that I think you know would be characteristic of bipolar disorder around sort of highs and lows, and them being much more pronounced than you know others might find in terms of their experience of life. So the reason I mention that is it's brought a lot of understanding to me about how I am wired and also the things that are good for me. And the things that are less good for me, and how I can, how I can see that as, you know, a, a, almost a better sort of instruction manual for life. You know, there are things that I do to keep me well, like running and meditating, and there are things I'll avoid. 
And often, you know, that is stuff like detail and project management because it just makes my brain hurt. So, you know, in a similar vein, it makes me wonder if I experience lots of things that I would, you know, see within my sons, within me, maybe I should look at that in a bit more detail on the same basis. It will give me a better understanding of who I am and why I experience the world in that way. And not to see it as something to be overcome or beaten, but actually to recognize the benefits and how I can sort of get the best of myself um, or the best out of myself and do in a professional sense, my best work, but from a personal sense, actually just have more acceptance and understanding of it's okay to be me. Yes. Yes. Because at the end of the day, our most valuable asset is our mind. Yeah. And understanding this tool that we have, if we think of it very mechanistically, but you know, it's more than just a tool. It, it, it's if you the more you understand it the more you can you know deliver in life and achieve what you want to do if you understand your mind yeah and i think for me so i mean the, the mind is the primary the mind and senses are the primary way we experience the world and if and if they are influenced by a lack of insight then you know i, I do wonder if we we don't have the full sort of awareness of who we are as an individual. I, I And I suppose where I'm going with this is I, I very much had experiences growing up of not feeling enough, of feeling other, because I you know, related to the world differently than a lot of people around me. And that sort of stuck with me through adulthood. And it's through a process of sort of self-discovery that I think is ongoing, actually, for, for all of us, for our whole lives. Um, but it's through that process I've become okay with me. And that is more valuable than anything. You know, yes, it's good from a workplace point of view and all the rest of it, but actually fundamentally being comfortable with who we are and how we experience the world and the way in which we show up is, it, it, it sounds a bit cliched, it is an enormous gift, um, yes. I feel. And I think sometimes with children, we're asking them who are neurodiverse, we're asking them to have a level of maturity, self-reflection and self-awareness that often doesn't come till, you know, your late teens or your 20s, but often they're kind of required to take personal at the age of 12 to start taking personal responsibility for the way they work, the way they yeah. think, the way they do life, the way that they're maybe slightly different and the same. and. And that's sort of brought to a younger age because there is a difference around that the edge. They're they're different in some way and they know it. And they're desperate to fit in and be the same as everyone else, but they realize that actually they've got to manage that surf, that wave, as it were, and they have to become more aware at an earlier age. It, and it's it's so true in our household. So my youngest son is twelve, I mentioned, and he is also dyspraxic. And, you know, often I hear him saying, I'm, I'm sorry about my dyspraxia. You know, there's some things I can't do. And I'm saying, well, that's okay. You know, there, we all find things difficult. And yesterday, you know, we were at sports day and one of the activities was skipping. And I could see that this was not something he had any sense of how to do. And he, he often watches, you know, visual cues from others. How have they gone about that? And that might give me a good indicator 
of how I can do it. And it just didn't connect at all. And that's, that's fine. You know, the next task he went on to, I think it was dribbling with a football, he was really comfortable with. He's seen that more often. And, and that, I suppose, that, that has helped to build pathways for him about what's expected of me here. But there is something in what you said about culturally expecting a quite a high level of maturity when, you know, they're still kids. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't have that level of maturity and nor would it have been apparent for me to reflect on who I am and, you know, how do I find my way in the world when I was 12? Yeah. It was hard enough as an adult, you know, in my 20s and probably increasingly my 30s, I found I was more interested in these questions. Yes. So talking about the mind, here's a link to Salveson Mind Room Centre. You know, now you're CEO of the Salveson Mind Room Centre. Could you give us a little bit of a insight into what is Salveson Mind Room Centre? What's the background? There, there's not that many organisations that stand the test of time when it comes to dyslexia because often, you know, a parent sort of really takes on a challenge for the seven to ten years that their child is dealing with it but then once it's over they're exhausted burnt out and that yeah. whatever group or organization they've built up round about them sort of fades away and but the salveson mind room center has really found its space can you describe it a little bit to us yeah gladly so so we're 22 years old and you know i guess You've, you've just given a, a bit of an insight into how we were founded. It very often is the case in a lot of charities, I find, where there is personal experience and there is a motivation to improve that experience for others. And that was the case for Salvas and Mind Room Centre. So Sophie and Robin Dow and their daughter Annie had a very difficult experience understanding you know, the way that Annie experienced the world. And they found some answers along the way, but were frustrated by the process and how long that took and how little there was out there to help them understand and, and, and you know, enable Annie to thrive in the world. So they set up um, As Was Mind Room. And although it was, you know, formally set up 20 odd years ago, it really got going probably in, in earnest a few years later. And our job um, was and remains to directly help and support parents, carers, children, and young people, whether they have a diagnosis or not, they will inevitably be experiencing difficulty in some way, shape, or form. Um, very often it is in formal education, and it could be a child has been or is at risk of exclusion or any number of other things, and they'll come to us. And our job um, principally is to listen impartially and support and, and both formulate a plan of action, but see it through with them. Um, we can't, you know, don't work with, you know, those groups forever, but often it can be quite a long-term relationship. And there, there is one relationship I'm aware of recently where for two years, we worked with a young man who was struggling with undiagnosed, you know, neurodevelopmental conditions. Um, quite an acute case, I suppose, was homeless, was unable to work. It's taken two years of really advocating on his behalf and supporting him and giving him the tools to have conversations with, you know, decision makers and service providers. And, you know, he's moved forward quite a lot since since then. 
And one of the things that is a measure of success for us is he has a much better sense of who he is and feels much more comfortable with who he is in the world. One of the benefits in, in amongst all of that is he's been able to secure housing and various other things. And they are important. I would see them as secondary. You know, actually being okay with who you are is of, you know, unlimited value, I think. So it, it's groups of individuals and, you know, parents and carers that we work with directly. And they're about several hundred a year, but in a very intensive way. In parallel, we work very closely with our sister organisation, the Salvus and Mind Dream Research Centre. And that lives within the Clinical Brain Sciences Centre of Edinburgh University. So, you know, their specialty is really the neuroscience and psychology of neurodiversity. And what we do is join that together with the lived experience that we have and then look to advocate and influence change at a broader societal level. So how can we help policymakers, employers and others learn more about neurodiversity and create the conditions that make, make it possible for people who experience these conditions or are around them to um, you know, find their way in the world and to thrive and to feel enabled, not to just have to conform to a system or a way of working. So it's a big part, I think, Darius, of what attracted me to the role, um, and that was just in the last three months, incidentally, was my own experience, much like Sophie and Robin, and wanting that to be something that is better for all parents and you know young people out there. And so that that's really the essence of our work, directly helping and supporting, being a bridge between policy and practice and really trying to advocate on behalf of all out there who are neurodivergent. Fantastic. I didn't realise that you did this sort of helping to formulate a plan and helping to sort of action that plan because, you know, that that is such a hard part of the whole thing because it's one thing going to a dyslexia organisation and finding out about dyslexia and then finding out about some ADHD you might have or some dysgraphia you might have and you've got all this information and so on. But it's another thing for to create a plan and to yeah. have assistance executing that plan because I... I bet you there's lots of people who are listening who are thinking, oh my goodness, how wonderful would it be to have someone to come alongside me and advocate and help and, you know, that has a little bit more knowledge. That's incredible. I mean, I, how many how many organizations are there like that in that you know of in, in so the spanning UK the whole realm of neurodiversity? Um, I really haven't come across any organization and I, I, I'll caveat that by saying I haven't do, done extensive research but i haven't come in you know across any organizations in a significant way that cover the whole spectrum of neurodiversity and you know provide that sort of specific support uh, and an action plan can be something as simple as the next meeting a parent has with school and here's the things that you're entitled to here are the things that you know we can attend with you if you would find it useful. Here's an email to write to a head teacher, for example. These are the key points that you might want to get across. So, you know, it's it's really grounded in the practical. And I, I think it's because we experience a lot of people that come to us are frustrated by the process or 
the lack of support from themselves or those that they, they love and care for. And so it's trying to help them just see some next steps on the path. We don't have a master plan, but we do um, desperately not want to leave them with just more information. You know, yeah. here's more about condition A. Um, the assumption is that you'll then go and do something with it. Well, we're a key part of saying, well, let us walk with you, you know, and wow. try and help you make sense of it. And we recognize we can't do that for everybody, but there is enormous learning yeah. in those interactions that we can then see when we're in front of, you know, whoever the stakeholder or decision maker might be. Actually, this is how things really are for folks on the ground. So you might have a policy that's well intended, but this is how it shows up. And we come across parents that experience this day and daily. So we think there is, you know, there is a need for reform. So, um, yeah, I suppose that's, that's where we come from. Very much about being there to let people be heard and understood and then work with them really practically to say, here's some steps we can take together. Fantastic. How on earth do you fund that? <laughs> um, well, this is my new job, Danny. <laughs> so <laughs> this is principally where we've been very fortunate to secure major donor funding that is unrestricted in nature because there is a real affinity with the work that we do. We have some project-led funding from a public sector point of view. We've increasingly got relationships with, I think, wider sort of commercial partners where we deliver training and sort of education and, you know, awareness raising, if you will. So, you know, in charitable terms, it's probably your typical mix of funding, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's essential. You know, the work we do really matters and it, it matters enormously to those that we directly work with, but much more widely, there is a far greater benefit and that is, that's worth investing in. So I think we see a lot of opportunity going forward to, you know, both underpin and expand the work that we do. Wow. I, it reminds me, I know this is oblique, but in very dyslexic fashion, it reminds me of Marie Curie in that you, when my wife had cancer, you know, you would have the Marie Curie Center and you drop in and they would make you a coffee. They would sit down and talk with you. They'd maybe help you fill out some forms for, you know, um, some benefits you're eligible for. And I'm dyslexic. I'm allergic to forms. You know, uh, it's like I, I can do it, but there's just this mental block, which is like, I know I'm going to hit a box which says such and such. And I'm going to spend an hour doing this quick <laughs> one minute fill in yeah. exercise that is like, oh, I don't know what how to answer that. This is horribly um, familiar. <laughs> you know, I'm, thank goodness I've got a wife who is very uh, <laughs> disciplined in terms of and, and linear in the way she thinks. Um, so in, in a way, we've got that for you know, that that center isn't just giving you information, it's walking alongside you and how, how powerful that is. Exactly that. And that, that will be as practical as we'll help you fill a form in. Yes. Or we'll help you understand, you know, your rights from an educational point of view, from a benefits yeah. perspective or otherwise. Well, I mean, I run a company called Dyslexia at Work and we help people apply for the Access to Work grant yeah. the government grant and then teach them how to stay organized with their iPad. <clears throat> now, the form is 
really simple. And you can get it done in about 10, 15 minutes. But, you know, I do it with quantity surveyors, lawyers, accountants, doctors, all sorts of professions. And they're like, I, I really don't want to do that form. And I'm like, I totally understand. I know. I'll yeah. sit with you. I'll open it up on Zoom. I will type it all in. You just say the answer. And when we hit a little stumbling block, I'll just say, what about this is a suggested sentence? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking. And then they roll and they fill in the rest. And then and it's it's all that. And then it gets submitted and then it and then it happens. But so often it's these tiny little administrative steps that completely stall a whole process. Yeah. And then lock you out. So <clears throat> just just by way of parallel. So the night before last, we're going away on holiday soon. And um, one of the requirements is a temporary visa. And I've got to do it for six of us. And I have to say, you know, I just wanted to weep <laughs> by the end of <laughs> application two, because it was really basic, you know, name and address, passport details, etc. Where will you stay? And so it goes. But, you know, the second application took me four attempts and I gave up. I thought I'll save my progress and I'll come back to it. Have I gone back to it? Of course I haven't because it was awful. And yet I could deal with something that is much more complex and, you know, scary to lots of people effortlessly. But the small administrative and, you know, just exhausting processes like that, yeah, they can really trip you up, I think. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. I want to do a little quiz with you, if you don't mind. I have developed a dyslexia quiz on the okay. App Store. Would you like to do my dyslexia <laughs> quiz on the App Store and see how you do? Go on then. <laughs> okay. I'll, Let's, I'll, try I'll <laughs> Let's try it out and see what score you get on the dyslexia quiz. This is going to be fascinating. Hi, I'm Dude. I'll quiz you, can you hear on that, the signs of dyslexia. I can hear it, yeah. Can that's I turn okay. on the audio on. so I can speak to you? I can quiz different people for you. Who is it going to be this time? Is it you, friend. a friend, or a child? What's the name Alan. of the person taking the quiz? Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. 50 rapid fire questions. It doesn't matter whether you say yes, no, or sometimes. Just take a quick guess at it. You know, okay. don't worry about getting it right or wrong. But the key thing is, think back to when you were 12. Yeah. And answer these questions as if you're a 12 year old or a 14 year old at school. Okay. Okay. And we'll, and you know, these aren't, you don't have to have all of these to have dyslexia. They're just common little traits of various different people with dyslexia and attributed more to ADHD or something else, but mm -hmm. they often track back to something like dyslexia. So let's give it a try. Signs of dyslexia and reading. Do you find it hard to read? Yes. Do you tend to read slower than your friends? Yes. Do you get stressed when you read aloud to others? Sometimes. 
Do you skip words when you read? Yes. Do you reread sentences and paragraphs a lot? Yes. Do you prefer to listen to a book rather than read it? Sometimes. Do you learn a spelling and forget it the next week? No. Do you tend to overcomplicate long written questions? Hey, well done. This is your score. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> your, it indicates your work is moderately <clears throat> impacted by dyslexia. So you're 85 out of 100. So what I tend to find is people with 90 to 100 really have a significant aspect of dyslexia in their work and life. I'm an 85 as well. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that in each one of all those areas, you can see the five rings. They're all at the same level. There isn't a, a jumping spike. So, you know, you, you, you probably, I would go so far as to say, you've probably got some form of mild to moderate dyslexia. Hmm. Uh, I mean, when I said earlier, I haven't looked into any depth. That, that is true, other than a couple of online tests that seem to indicate, you know, there were patterns that correlated with that. So, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not surprised by any of the outcomes there. And although I did try and put myself back in school at 12, I couldn't help come forward to present day and think about, I do that all right now, you know, yeah. <laughs> all of it right now. <laughs> I quite often, um, I mean, it's a small thing, but I quite often start a word with like a letter in the middle and then think, oh, right, I'll need to go back and fill out the start of that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, reread pages on a book. I have to read books in a couple of pages and just let that go in and leave it and come back to it another time. And then projects particularly, this is a real, when we were talking earlier about, you know, jobs and things, and um, I was speaking a little bit about things that are less good for me. Projects and planning is very high up that list because I just have so many ideas that landing them into something coherent with next actions and all that stuff. I know I would like that, but I'm not the person to do it. Um, you'll still be waiting for that, you know, a week next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. If it's down to me to translate it into, you know, a logical model that other people can understand. Um, and so it is when you try and explain your ideas to somebody and they're saying, yeah, but, but what is that actually? And yeah. I thought I'd be really clear about it. Yes. You know, one of the things that I have learned in this journey of discovery with dyslexia is the importance of writing something on a whiteboard or a piece of paper or something while I'm talking with someone. So my daughter, for example, yesterday was explaining to me the cricket match between England and New Zealand yeah, and the strategy that they would need to follow to actually win. And it's quite complex. I'm so already she, lost just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, she's already explaining it. And I'm like, I'm really sorry, Megan. <laughs> but could you just draw it out for me? And yeah. she's, oh, okay, fine, whatever. But I've got enough self-awareness to know that my working memory will be completely overwhelmed 
with yeah. all these different facts and referring back to this and referring back to that. And I'm like, my mem my memory is so used up keeping everything in place that it can't actually process the logic. And so yeah. if I can just get that on a whiteboard and all the numbers and the teams and order, the moment she did it, it was like night and day. The moment she did it, I was like, oh, I can totally keep up with you now because all of my processing power is spent on the concept rather than the facts and details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I found that and I'm learning that more and more running my company as CEO of my company is that I need it personally, but my team also needs it from me. Yeah. Because when it's in my mind and it's totally clear in my mind, I have to get it onto a whiteboard on Zoom or my iPad or whatever and draw it out for them. And they'll go, oh, that's what you mean. Well, of yeah. course, it's what you mean. Oh, well, now <laughs> I know because there's something about this sort of third party in the conversation is the whiteboard. Yeah, no, it's a good point. <clears throat> I think I've been quite fortunate the last couple of jobs I've been in to work with people who see that they can be a sort of translator of getting things out of my head. And actually, one of my colleagues was a really fantastic project manager. And she, she often used to say, if I don't know what's in your head, I can't do anything with it. You know, I can't translate that into a thing. So actually just being able to talk that through. And the more we worked together, the more she got used to how I operated and what was actually what was quite energizing in that it wasn't about me conforming to somebody else's system it was about understanding oh okay so that's how you operate what can we do to help you know get that into a format that others can interact with and inevitably that was delivering projects and things and the ideas I had you know they weren't always right at all but if they were worth having they would be then you know almost kind of articulated into a fashion that other people could relate to. Yeah. So often I ask people in the podcast and their dyslexia story, what was their wake up call? And for you, it was your children. Correct. What was yeah. the, the main challenge that you're, you were, you found that you've been facing with dyslexia? And in a way, we've talked about that with the Salveson Mind Room Center, the main challenge being that gap between knowing about something and then doing something about it and that walking with you. What's, um, you know, and, and I think I often ask what's the reward that you've got out of this process or, you know, often on a journey, you, you go and find something out and then you've got something to give at the end of it. And mm -hmm. very much Mind Room is giving in, in terms of walking with people. What's ahead because I heard that you've got a conference coming up. I saw on your website there's a conference. Tell me more about, you know, what's ahead. Um, well, I suppose if, if I might just step back one um, one step for now. So you mentioned rewards. So, you know, a personal level that has been better self-awareness and recognising, as I think we've touched on, what works for me and what doesn't. At a collective level, however, you know, I, I also mentioned I've certainly, you know, spent most of my adult career really kind of looking to advocate for actually a fairer and more inclusive society, if I was to boil it down. Neurodiversity in particular, 
I think gets us very close to recognizing that we are quite literally all wired differently. You know, there is no, you'll, you and your listeners will know this far better than I, there is no human brain that is the same as another. And so it brings me to our conference, It Takes All Kinds of Minds, or ITICOM for short. Um, so that'll be a major global conference hosted in Edinburgh on the 13th and 14th of March next year. And handily, we did a, a sort of a teaser lecture about three months ago, um, and it's at the Edinburgh International Conference Centre, and we called it Beautiful Brain. And we had really eminent academic speakers from effectively pre and postnatal right through to adolescent um, development of brain. And one of the things, and it's such a throwaway concept, but it really struck with me, was one of the speakers um, was a child psychologist, and she had done a lot of work on mapping the evolution of the brain um, in the population group that she studied. And, you know, she, she just, this remark about, you know, every face is different. And so, you know, we take that at face value quite literally, but we don't take at face value that every brain is different. We, we have mm. very structured ways of thinking about the brain. And, you know, in many cases that it is this homogenous thing uh, that broadly operates the same way. And I think you know, that's a lot of what I, I am quite keen to highlight, that we are wired differently, that true inclusion means recognising and celebrating that. And the ability, just as I have increasingly leaned into, to understand that we're okay, just as we are. You know, to understand that we all have skills and abilities, um, just as we are just now. We don't need to bend and shape um, to meet this kind of singular idea of how a brain should operate because the more we know about each other, the more we can recognize that difference and say, oh, that's great. You know, you're brilliant at coming up with ideas, Darius, but um, I'm going to go to your colleague to, to, to form that into a project plan. And I, and I think that for me is what success looks like. So our conference really is to shine a big light on neurodiversity is squarely focused on neurodiversity and will take, you know, physical and virtual attendees through four, the four C's as we're calling them. So we'll begin with cells within the brain, circuits within the brain, cognition, and then the last aspect is community. And I suppose what we mean by that is how does, how does the brain and how do us as humans really show up in the world? And we'll kind of follow through a journey of the evolution of the brain and, you know, its biology right through to what does that mean in the real world for how I act at school or in the workplace or how I might want to experience, you know, whatever the thing may be. And that, I think, is going to be a really significant moment for us to, to translate a lot of the academic research and insight and what we already know into really practical and accessible terms and formats. So I think that's the goal of the conference, but it is just a step on the way of really elevating the understanding of neurodiversity to a global scale. You know, we, we would like to see Salvus and Mindroom Centre operate far and wide and, and right across, you know, an international sort of platform now, we, we, we probably won't be able to do a lot of the direct work we do with 
children, young people and families at that scale. But certainly the thinking insights we, we have, the academic insight we've got, and that bridge from, you know, almost policy to practice, I think, you know, I think and know that we will do a lot more to take that learning to a global audience um, and to want to partner with, you know, relevant organisations and, and stakeholders all across the world. Um, we've got a bit of a path to um, to walk down, I think, in order to get there. But we're just finalising a three-year forward plan. And that will certainly see us expand the direct work we do with children, young people and families across the UK. But it will certainly significantly open up the kind of advocacy role, I suppose, that I've mentioned um, to an international audience. So we've got really big and bold ambitions but I think, you know, if ever there has been a time, now is it. I think neurodiversity is increasingly entering the lexicon and we would like we would like to play a significant role in helping to not just demystify what that means, because I think lots of organisations can do that, but building practical bridges to how will this show up in practice? And, and I think if I might come back to the term, celebrating difference and helping us all find our way in the world just as we began this podcast. Fantastic, Alan. That's fantastic. So, you know, there's, there's listeners, you tend to find people who listen to podcasts are, are deep thinkers and deeply interested in practical things and getting things done. I've got a few questions. Number one, who would be at the conference? Who's the, who's the conference for? Is it for policymakers or is it for parents? Is it for business people? Who who would come to that conference? Um, well, I mean, it, 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 it sounds awfully like a politician's answer. It is for everybody. So we really want to see parents, carers, young people there, um, because there will be a lot of insight, I think, that will be distilled into practical yeah. things that you can take away and, and try at home. There will certainly be, the way it's curated, there will certainly be things that will appeal to employers, for example. There will be things that will appeal to academics and policymakers and others. So we've deliberately, you know, kind of built the conference so that it can have quite broad reach. And what we're very keen to do is create a bursary fund so that parents can attend for free. You know, a, a two-day conference um, isn't something that might be within reach of everybody. So we're very keen to try to create as many funded places as possible. And so, yeah, hopefully there's something more I can share with you and listeners in the weeks and months ahead. But um, we'd love to see itacom.org if I might. <laughs> give you a wee plug we'd love to see you there and if you can't make it physically there will certainly be live stream options to join in virtually fantastic and just swipe up while you're listening to this podcast and we'll have all the links for the conference and anything else we've re referred to in the show notes so you can just link straight through to it Thanks. and on that is and we'll have links for the Salveson Mine Room Centre itself and the Salveson Mine Room as well. Other parents might be more local and actually might be able to access 
the advocacy services that you've got. How does that work and how do you go about doing that? Is it something, do you have to be referred or can you just no, turn no, up yourself? No, no, no. So it is something you can be referred to or self-referred to. So again, not to drop links all the time, but mindroom.org, um, okay. you can get in touch with us directly there. Great. One of our team will, will pick up your inquiry and then we'll assess in conversation with you what would be the most useful next step for you. Brilliant. In some cases, that might be actually some practical advice and some signposts. In others, it might be much more. It might be much more in depth, and we can we can assess that with you when we speak to you. So, you know, please encourage listeners to come and find us. We're only too happy to help there. Fantastic. Well, drop as many links as you want here, <laughs> Alan. You know, uh, blow your trumpet. Uh, get get what you're doing out there. Absolutely, don't hold back. Next question is, so you're talking about partnering with other people, other organizations and so on, because I know I speak to a lot of people in America. I've got clients in America, parents in America, and many of the parents of the, 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 the children's business that we run, which is Bullet Map Academy, that the parents who come to us with their kids are also advocating and leads different dyslexia organizations and groups and Facebook groups and initiatives and so forth. And they often look to Scotland and the UK um, and also Scotland, especially as a, you know, being ahead of, of them in dyslexia awareness, dyslexia provision, neurodiversity as well. So there's a real interest. Australia, again, Australia, if it was a scale, it would be like the perceived scale in yeah. terms of institutional, organizational countries' awareness of dyslexia. People would think of the UK up at a eight out of 10 and the US somewhere at a six, seven out of a 10 and Australia probably at a four out of 10, unfortunately. Mm. Um, whether that's an accurate perception or not, um, that's certainly a perception. So when you put that sort of statement out there, I'm sure there are people who are interested in the whole advocacy side of things. How mm -hmm. would they connect with you and in what way could you sort of partner and so on? How are you envisioning that over the next three to 10 years? Um, well, I think envisage as being, um, you know, I, I almost... I think of a parallel in my previous role where I led His Royal Highness Prince of Wales' Responsible Business Network. And that was working with lots of different sort of issue areas, like um, particularly around equality, so race equality, gender equality, very much sort of challenging and advising businesses and governments and otherwise. And the thing that, you know, was always very evident there is it's a bit trite to say it's a team sport, but you know, no one of us has particular ownership, if you will. It's about actually strengthening the message by working in partnership. So, you know, I would welcome organizations that might be of a like mind that would like to have a conversation. And you, you, you'd be very you'd be very welcome to put my details up or or perhaps they, they could come to us um, via our website. But I, I think it is about identifying those who we have common cause with and vice versa and understanding where we might amplify our messaging and get more support and practical advice out there in the public domain. That, that's our goal. And, I, you know, again, I think you asked the question about, 
you know, who else does this? And, and there could well be similar organizations across the world. We haven't come across that many in the UK, if any. So maybe that's opportune to think about, you know, how do we team up uh, and sort of speak with one voice, if you will. Um, it, incidentally, just going, coming back to our conference, the web traffic we've seen to our conference homepage is almost mirroring the groups and the and the nations that you're working in. So the UK is attracting the most interest. The US is second, not seeing Australia quite as high up as third, but um, other areas like Sweden and you know Nordic countries were seeing quite a lot of interest as well. Now we're not talking about millions of sort of page impressions, but nevertheless, that's the sort of running order, if you will, of interested countries, which I think is quite quite revealing in its own right. And you're quite right in saying, so the UK is, is you know, there's lots we're not getting right, but in, you know, the matters of inclusion and neurodiversity, I think particularly, I do think we're making some, some interesting inroads and there's a lot to learn. And we can only do that by learning with, you know, and from others. But there's a lot that I think Scotland can, if I might say so, can sort of offer by way of sort of education and insight. And I think, you know, the depth of research we can draw on from our research centre is quite remarkable. For those that are so inclined, the annual research excellence framework that universities take part in, 50% of what our research centre do has been, has been just rated as world leading. And that's significant. You know, there, there is real credibility there that I think we want to package up and make accessible to many more. So, yeah, that's a long way of a shortcut of saying I think we welcome expressions of interest from sort of like-minded organisations that might wish to, uh, you know, might wish to find out how they could either become involved in ITACOM and or explore sort of wider working relationships too. Fantastic. Because I know... In America, when I speak to dyslexia professionals and executive functioning coaches, uh, learning coaches, often many of them are finding that the real thing that brings the transformation isn't necessarily the dyslexia coaching or the executive function coaching, which, which does bring transformation. But what the bottleneck is the advocacy side of getting something happening rather than talking round and round in circles and getting wrapped up in red tape and becoming mummified in it. Yeah. And so many of them are becoming individual advocates who are paid individually by parents and so on. Mm -hmm. So I could see, I, I, I sense there's, there's a growing realization that this advocacy is, is really needed. This practical advocacy is walking with you is needed. Yeah. And I would imagine there's a number of individuals as well as and I and knowing America, many of them will start clustering together and forming groups and you know collectives, etc., or organizations as well. So yeah, I'm I'm it'd be fascinating to see how, what crystallizes round about that because there isn't a lot that I've come across, and I'm not an expert. I, I I just run this podcast and speak to people about dyslexia, but I didn't actually know that's what you did. 
to be honest. <laughs> you, you know, I, 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 nor did I, if I'm if I'm blunt. So in seeing this role crop up, I thought, what a remarkable organisation that is a well kept secret at the moment. Yeah, um, and that that's been quite telling. So even in Scotland and the UK, where we are so intertwined with policy and practice, there is quite low awareness of what we do. And a big part of joining Darius has been to change that, and and not for our own organisational ends, but because there is such good stuff that can you know find a much better, much broader audience. I think there's an awful lot that we we can get to as soon as possible, actually, to to start to signpost to information, resources, practical insights that we've gleaned over the last sort of twenty years or so of operating in this in this area. So, yeah, we 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 don't want to remain a well kept secret. I think is is what I'm saying. Well. Alan, thank you for coming on the podcast and telling us about this well-kept secret and uh, <laughs> making it known to a wider audience. I'm looking forward to it. I think I'd love to come to the conference as well. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. Um, we'd love to have you. And we'd love to, uh, we'd love to just say thank you to you and your listeners for the space to, to have a conversation today. It's been really good. And as ever, we learn, you know, something in the process and for myself, you know, <laughs> dyslexia, um, you, you've affirmed some of the beliefs that were beginning to form in me anyway. So um, I, I've certainly learned something and I hope it's been good for, for you and listeners too. So thanks once again for the opportunity to come along today too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where Dyslexia Productivity Coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.